Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it is time for Tuesday Home Time. We're a little bit late, but in a very good course today. Begin today with part two of the interview with Brian Newman and Bruce Francis looking at their time in Palestine. A spotlight on human rights in the Pacific with Lee Rhiannon. A monthly gene ethics report with Bob Phelps. Attacks on journalists and activists in the Western Sahara with Kate Lewis. And a climate emergency looking at it from a medical point of view with Dr Margie Beavis, the Vice President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Interview with Brian Newman and Bruce Francis talking about their trip to Jordan, Palestine and Ethiopia. We continue today in Palestine and the next question related to the Bedouin people of Palestine continually under threat from the Israeli regime. Yeah, they certainly are. And the place we stayed, I think my understanding was that it's where a lot of Bedouin groups had ended up living, so almost like it had become an enclave, but always really uncertain about their future because it's all in Area C. And what does being a Bedouin mean in the 21st century? Pretty much what it used to mean. So you're living in tents, temporary structures with, you know, maybe a bit of electricity from solar. We stayed 37 of us in one open tent. They fed us from a kitchen that was smaller than a shipping container. People go again to a great deal of effort. There were goats, there were donkeys, there were chickens everywhere. We spent a couple of hours sitting with some of the people from the community in a pile of sort of rubble from the harvesting of almonds. The scraps where we just went through it to get the almonds out and I suspect that the rest of it was used as goat feed it was. or something. Yeah. But it was actually going through this huge pile, just picking out the good almonds to actually use. So really modest ways of living, very low-key. I think that there are some differences. I think the mobility is not what it was, so people tend to have what mm. look like reasonably makeshift structures, but they live in, I think, permanently because other land use and you know what the Israelis are doing people can't wander people tend to also have much smaller herds because you know half the land they used to use has now been taken over by Israeli settlers or uh, closed off to them in one way or another and everyone's got a mobile phone <laughs> but, <laughs> and they all have their phones but they still have shepherds and goat herds. The land's not fenced, so a person will go with their flock for the day 
and then bring them back at night for penning and so forth. Whenever you see animals, there's always people there. So I was watched one night as we were waiting for some of the walkers who were late um, arriving, um, and I'd walked up a particular way, and I could see this quite large goat herd coming from the distance with a guy on a donkey at the back of them and he got maybe two kilometres from home and hopped off the donkey and let the donkey go and then the donkey sort of went to the front and led the goats home and you could just sort of see them knowing the way and so sort of well behaved and then he just walked behind them and walked uh, sort of back home and clearly he'd been gone all day and you look around and there doesn't appear to be any feed (laughs) Which is why, you know, the scraps from the almond harvest are actually fed to the goats um, when they get back. But, yeah, that's what people do. They still have these flocks of sheep and goats and take them out. Did you get a sense of how much water they have access to? That will depend on the area, less than what they used to. Um, And, you know, there are serious restrictions on them being able to access underground water. But there was a water supply at the Bedouin camp where we stopped. Um, it had to be pumped, but people were up taking you know, their old vehicles and filling up various containers um, with water. Um, and there was certainly water available to do the cooking and uh, you know, there was a toilet um, that also had access to the water because that was in the Jordan Valley. So that's part of that whole area that's under threat of annexation from Netanyahu and, um, you know, with his election promises. You talked about the old ruins in Jordan. Are there any left in the countryside in Palestine? Uh, That's a really interesting story because there's lots. There are actually lots. As I understand, it's part of the Oslo Agreement. The Israelis have control over all archaeological sites. So there's two things that happen. One is that Israeli archaeologists go in and all they're interested in is stuff that actually proves that Israelis were there before. So then they're happy to just bore through anything else um, and destroy anything else. Or secondly, if it's in other areas, even if it's in areas A, which are supposed to be controlled exclusively by the Palestinians, the Palestinians aren't allowed to do it, then they won't give them permission to do anything. There's no potential then to either unearth your own history uh, and how far that goes back, but secondly, uh, no potential to really develop those sites as tourist sort of destinations. There was particularly one town we stayed at, Sebastia, that's got an old Roman city in it, and it was there that particularly it was brought home to us... uh, the difficulties of the Oslo Agreement stuff around, Palestine, around Israel controlling what happens with archaeology. We saw examples where really poor quality restoration work had been done, but we also were told stories about how stuff from the ruins in Sebastia have been taken away and put in places in Israel with the pretense of it being... Israeli, rather than actually being where it was. Sebastia had beautiful surroundings. The Roman city was amazing. The whole town was full of 
fantastic old buildings, lots of guest houses had been developed. So potentially a really strong tourist industry, but being really hindered by the fact that they can't do any restoration work themselves because they're not allowed and there there are threats that you know the israelis will because it'll be part of an israeli national park that's how they sort of and so then they might put that infrastructure over it then start charging people to go in uh, and then you know the israelis taking the the fees that come from it and just really generally interfering with uh, the palestinians capability of actually developing something and then it's used to perpetuate the myth that the Palestinians are hopeless. And what's life like in the, the major cities compared to the countryside? It depends where you are. And they do, each of the cities has its own particular character. I would say, given what we understand around the occupations, obviously the population's growing. There's quite a lot of building happening uh, in places. There's certainly a lot of agriculture um, taking place in the north. They're busy, bustling sort of metropolitan areas. Um, and none of them are as you know big like Melbourne or Sydney, uh, but much more bustly and and sort of active and and stuff. Shops everywhere. You know, people sort of selling stuff as a way of making a living. Quite a few of the big cities are reasonably conservative. Ramallah, you can, you know, get a drink of alcohol, you know, pretty easily. In Hebron and Nablus, it's virtually impossible. That sort of thing, I think, um, reflects. There's a lot of um, small business, particularly in Hebron. Hebron's actually the biggest city in, in the West Bank. You, it has a bustle around that. But clearly there's a lot of poor people. I mean, one of the interesting things, I guess, in terms of the country, this year was a fabulous harvest in terms of olives. Even though they try to sabotage their... Yep. So the olive trees themselves produced exceedingly well. But then the Israelis put restrictions on what could actually be exported. So even though it was potentially a year where people could make a killing in terms, you know, financially, in terms of, well, not killing, but, you know, a really good financial year, the Israelis' response to that was to limit what could actually be exported so people couldn't actually reap the benefit of a good harvest. We did spend some time in Jerusalem and did a a short tour with a different tour company, a progressive organisation, where we saw yet again the encroachment of the settlements in Jerusalem. And that was probably one of the most depressing parts of our time there, was physically seeing the way the settlements are slowly encircling the whole of East Jerusalem, hearing stories about the the communities, the Palestinian communities that are remaining there, the daily IDF raids, all with the effort of pushing people out of those communities. And the complexity around Jerusalem is that if you move out of Jerusalem city, then you lose your pass to work or be in Jerusalem. So there's the potential of more and more people being 
more and more Palestinians being excluded from being Jerusalemites. They do things like they'll develop some new housing within Jerusalem and then they'll reclassify it as not being in Jerusalem anymore so that people lose their citizenship rights. They haven't gone anywhere. They've just designated it no longer as being part of Jerusalem. So then they're no longer allowed to live in the other parts of Jerusalem because they're not Jerusalemites. And not allowed to work there and so forth. So they lose their residency. Again, those are the things that you don't sort of... It takes a while to understand, like house demolitions that happen. Part of the effort around the house demolitions is that people then don't have an address in Jerusalem because their house has been demolished. So then they have to pretend to be staying with a relative or something that is in Jerusalem in order to keep their pass for their job and their um, prospects and so forth. One of the cities we visited in Palestine was Hebron. The highlight of our visit to Hebron, which is a very depressing place because of the settlements that are right through the city, was going to the kefir factory where the kefirs that you can buy through 3CR come from. We were welcomed as we've been before, as the people who import them. It was lovely to visit the people. They're really friendly. It's a funny little factory. It was all decked up and very tidy apart from the fact that there was a whole pile of olives on the floor of one part of the factory (laughs) waiting to be done. And they were about to host a minister from the Palestinian Authority, so the place was looking very slick. But it was um, nice to visit again. It was. And, you know, there was production going on in the 1920s um, looms, which would go clackety-clack, clackety-clack, clackety-clack. But, you know, obviously they were producing stuff and people were still employed there. And uh, so that was nice to see, really. That um, uh, And the fact that relatively we don't buy a lot of stock, but we're treated like we were the most important customers you could possibly imagine, which was just delightful. One of the resounding memories of going to Palestine again is the welcome. Everyone says, welcome to Palestine. So they don't just say welcome, they say welcome to Palestine to you. On numerous occasions, people recognised us as having been there before, in cafes, in hotels, tour guides, a whole range of people. Oh, yes, I remember you, you so-and-so-and-so. That lovely sense of people really regarding visitors as being important. Did you go to Bethlehem at all? Yeah, we stayed in Bethlehem for a few days. And is that encroached upon as well as Jerusalem? Not to the same extent because Bethlehem's it's more clearly within Palestine. But certainly we saw, you know, within 100 metres of where we were staying, we saw young people on the streets throwing stuff at the IDF just by the wall and that was just on a sort of ordinary day it wasn't spectacular um, in terms of being anything in particular one of the things that we did experience in a number of the villages that we stayed in on the walk was some amazing celebrations of young people being released from prison the first we heard about it was um, you hear these car horns and a bit of... um, gunfire 
out in the street in the early evening and there'd be a cavalcade of cars all with their hazard lights on, lots of tooting of horns and the odd bit of gunfire. And on three separate occasions we were told, oh yes, that's so-and-so in the town who's just been released from prison and this is the celebration to celebrate them coming home. Is this adults or children? Mm, Young people, so probably early 20s they seem to be. Um, People had been in prison for maybe two or three years, we were told. Yeah, and sometimes not on any charges. Administrative detention, as they call it. Well, they're lucky to get out at all, aren't they, when they you've are. got that? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Hence the celebrations. Did you manage to speak to any families who have members in jails? And, of course, the jails are in Israel. They, they don't get to see their loved ones very often. No, I did speak briefly to the mother of one of the people who just got out. Obviously, very excited. And the fact that I said, oh, you know, big big celebration last night. She, and then she, just the immediate reaction was then to invite me in, <laughs> which, you know, we were with the group 37. I wasn't going to invite 36 other people in as well. So, But clearly, you know, a, a sense of delight and excitement. Um, and it is something that everyone knows. I mean, we were staying with one family on right on the edge of the town when it sort of went off. They knew exactly what was going on, who it was, that, uh, which family, blah, blah, blah. Those people who are detained, it's sort of family business, but it's community business as well. And did you hear about any of the villagers who have had those demonstrations every Friday? They've been doing it for years and years to try and get a bit of freedom for themselves and and then the the IDF comes in and drags a few kids off and and then they come back in the middle of the night and take them them out of their beds in the middle of the night. We didn't go to any of those villages in particular. What? was interesting though was um, there was a question at one point to one of our guides around being in prison one of our guides um, had wanted to study overseas and had done exceedingly well at school um, had gone uh, then and got uh, an interview for a scholarship to study overseas had then, because uh, as a teenager during the Second Intifada, had been arrested, the Israelis had denied him access to Jerusalem to go and do the interview. He then organised to get smuggled in in the boot of a car, got in, did the interview, got accepted, won the scholarship, then bought the tickets you know, got the place in the American University, went down to King Hussein to cross, and they said, no, not today, come back tomorrow. He did it for a week, every day being sent back, and now he has a... That's 15 years ago. He's never been able to leave the country. He's got kids of his own, and now his wish is for his kids to be able to do it. Those sorts of stories, and... All our guides had, in one way or another, obviously been involved in community action, uh, and that has ongoing repercussions. And do the people talk about what's happening in Gaza, and especially what's been happening there for the last months and months, where many people have died, thousands have been injured, they'd have relatives there, some people? 
It's certainly everyone knows about it and everyone um, does talk about it. The person who's the head of the Amos Trust actually went to Gaza, took four days out of the trip to go to Gaza. Um, so he went and did that and he certainly came back and told us about some of the stuff in terms of the situation in Gaza, which is sort of clearly getting worse and worse. Also, some of the other stuff around, you know, how amazing Gazans are. <laughs> um, uh, uh, he reckons even friendlier than the West Bank. I find that hard to believe. But, uh, <laughs> but yes, there is a sense of people being part of the struggle. Everyone does their bit in their own little way. You know, there's a lot of um, hope, I think, pinned on uh, the international community. One of those sort of, I find one of those more difficult aspects of, of being there, that people are so pleased that you're there, but there's a sort of an expectation which comes with it that, you know, this is actually really good for them and, you know, their sense of achieving justice, which, you know, from me looks not breathtakingly strong. Um, so that's a sort of a difficult sort of thing I reckon but there's certainly for me uh, always this really strong sense that going is a fabulous thing to do because it's recognition it's support uh, and people do get a burst of energy and hope from it tell us about your last night there at Bethlehem dinner to a, a <laughs> restaurant called Folder in a restored part of the old city of Bethlehem, just near Manger Square. Beautiful area where international money had come in to do restoration work. The restaurant was in a guest house. Restaurant run by a French-born Palestinian man who cooks to order, so you have to book 24, at least 24 hours in advance, um, and they devise a menu for based on what's around to suit your dietary needs. We were the only customers in the restaurant that night and had a dinner that would cut it with high-end restaurant in Melbourne, but then had the added joy of sitting with the chef and chatting with him for three-quarters of an hour after dinner about his views on where things were in terms of Palestine and so forth. So that was a, a real added treat to an amazing dinner. Well, he must have been fairly optimistic if he's staying there. Yeah. Well, he moved there. That's what I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's got projects on the go. He's bringing out a cookbook of favourite recipes of famous Palestinians, talking about developing another restaurant which will help to feed people who are hungry. Yeah, it was sort of really interesting, really. And he was doing... You know, clearly the guest running, running the guest house is a business, but most of the other things he was talking about doing were all not-for-profit enterprises in terms of raising money for other things, yeah. And it was beautiful. I mean, it was really beautiful. And it, it was literally, I reckon, less than 100 metres from Manger Square, which is the centre of Bethlehem. It was so peaceful and quiet and walls and big courtyards and we're sitting outside having dinner. Uh, it's another world, really. 
And that's the ending of my interview with Brian Newman and Bruce Francis about their trip to Bethlehem and all other parts of Palestine, the West Bank, late last year. But next week, we'll hear about their time in Ethiopia. But we couldn't go out without telling you more about the kafia scarves, especially as they told you about the little factory that makes them. 3CR are selling kafia Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. For months, pressure has mounted on the UN human rights body to send a fact-finding mission to the Philippines in light of the continuing gross human rights abuses under the Duterte regime. In early December, a high-level delegation of foreign dignitaries Church leaders spent a week meeting Indigenous peoples, vulnerable communities, political prisoners, leaders of civil society groups and unions and officials of the Philippines government. One of those in the delegation was former Senator Lee Rhiannon from the Greens Party Australia. When I spoke to her, I first mentioned that it was my understanding that Duterte had refused to allow international human rights advocates into the country and asked her how then did their delegation get in and how many made the journey. I went straight in. There was a delegation of 10 of us. We were invited to come because the United Nations Human Rights Council earlier this year agreed that they would investigate human rights issues in the Philippines and submissions are being prepared so we went there to collect a whole lot of testimonies from people about this very issue. And who were the people who were there with you? Two people from New Zealand. There was Robert Reed, who's the president of First Union which is the largest union. Tino Tuiano, he's in the Greens Party in New Zealand. There was Reverend um, Jean Wu from the National Council of, of Churches in Korea. Reverend Joram Kalamatan from the Asia Pacific Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. We did have a representative from China, but he got sick and he had to immediately go home, which was unfortunate, and there was a few others as well. Did you break up into smaller groups or did you travel together around the places? Well, because of the situation, it was decided that we would stay in Manila and we would meet people within Manila. But there was a few of uh, my colleagues, one of them being Robert Reed, um, who I mentioned from the union movement in New Zealand. They went to Negros, where there's been shocking crimes committed against union people because, I mean, many groups have been targeted, but certainly a prominent one is union leaders and workers and union members, uh, and they collected some very disturbing evidence there. Just wondering how difficult or easy it was for those people to come to you. I was there for a week, 
what I certainly sensed, particularly when I was meeting people from the communities who had lost loved ones, literally shot in front of them, we went to their homes and it was very, very distressing. You know, all the people we're meeting, the Filipinos, they lived there. Some had been overseas um, and in exile because their life was under threat, but they then chose to come back to be part of the struggle. And I asked them that very question, how do you manage that? And they said, we, you know, we've got to know, we've got support, we've got to know where we can go, where we can't go, who we should go with. They're obviously living in a very different way from how you and I live here and they're coping with something that's really horrendous, like what the president of the Philippines, Duterte, is doing as state terrorism on a huge scale. Can you talk about your meetings with families of those who have died in the so-called drug wards? And it's, it's quite obvious now from everyone that talks about it that it's a, a war on the poor. Very much a war on the poor. And the people that we're talking about are people who have often been relocated many times. While I was there, there was the C Games on C standing for Southeast Asian Games. Now, I think it's wonderful bringing people together from the region to play sport, but it came at a huge cost for local people. So a whole number of local people were just moved, forced relocation. In their words, to us, they were dumped. And this has happened, and some of them said it's not the first time it's happened to them. They've been relocated before. The government will move them to a new bit of land. Often they have no facilities there at all. And this is something that occurs quite often. And then on top of it, it's often where a lot of these just... I I mean, the, the description of these killings was one of the saddest things I've ever sat through. We're sitting in a little a home of a person. I really can't call it a house because they cobbled it together from what I could see from various building materials because this is an example of the relocation. Very small room. There's little children there. There's the mother who I would say was in her 60s. There's her daughter who was probably in her 20s. And there was a few people, other Filipino people who had come with us and she described how one night her son and daughter-in-law had come to visit and they were watching a program that they liked on television, a little black and white television. And it's one of those tiny places where people obviously pick their beds up in the morning and they um, tidy it up and put that in the corner and then they're preparing meals and there's a little few plastic chairs where they watch the television. It's very, very small. There's a knock on the door, two men come in, one's got a mask on, one's got a, um, they've both got guns, but only one's got a mask. And they start um, questioning the son. The um, daughter-in-law gets very fearful. She goes and wakes the father who had been working all day. Anyway, what then happens is that the father and the son are both shot. Their grandchildren are there. They're both shot. The father dies on the spot. The son is taken to hospital and dies at the hospital. You know, that's just extraordinary. Like, I think I'm 68. I think the woman was probably about my age. I have grandchildren. I have children. And for that to happen, to well, to lose your loved ones like uh, in any way, but to lose them like that, like, hard to believe. Another woman we met, she, you know, like, again, very poor people. She has three children. She had still been um, working from home, looking after the children. But the main breadwinner you know, was her husband. And he had said to her that day that he would be home for dinner because normally he worked worked long hours. He didn't come home. Her brother comes the next day and said he's been shot. And he was dead. And now, 
soon as I saw her, I realised that she was obviously somebody who had lost her loved one. Like the pain and strain on her face was extreme. And then she described her family life. Now, she's had to take what she described as shelf packing, like working at um, some shop is what I guess. She had three children. Two of them are young teenagers. One was 10. The 10-year-old now lives with her mother because she has to now go and work. She works from four in the morning. She leaves home at four in the morning, starts soon after, and it finishes after five in the evening. So the family's disrupted. Like, you know, like the, the consequences are massive. And this is going on. Thousands and thousands of people have been killed by Duterte. The, the police have, a, have actually boasted that they've killed more than 20,000. Now, interestingly, there's obviously a lot of criticism of this. There's human rights groups. There's a big un- international union campaign against these crimes against humanity. Since the criticism started, Duterte's forces have tried to say, oh, it's not so many, and they're giving lower figures now because of the gross crimes they're committed. They're trying to paint it in a, a different way. But what I was told when I was there is one way they're manipulating the figures is that they dump some of the bodies that they, when they kill people, when the police or the paramilitary kill people, they dump the bodies in the Manila Harbour, the Manila Bay, or they sometimes just take the bodies to the hospital and then they're not counted as police shootings. So, you know, on every level, it's extreme. The good news is, is that the people are fighting back. They are very united and there's um, some good developments in the progressive communities there. It's not just the the so-called drug-related deaths, is it? The human rights defenders have been targeted for many years now? Yes, that's very true. Human rights defenders, there's the union leaders that I mentioned, there's environmental activists, and now a lot of the leaders from the Indigenous communities uh, have been targeted. On the second day that I was there... I had a very interesting visit to the University of the Philippines. We went there to meet some young students, high school students actually, about 70 of them, from there, and they're called the Lamad people, and they're from Mindanao. What's been happening there is that their communities, for a long time now, that been mining companies and companies that are coming to that island to try and make quick profits, either because, again, of the tax breaks that the Duterte government sets up for them when they establish these economic zones. They've seen so much of their land taken over by mining companies, big um, property developers, plantations often um, setting up huge palm oil plantations. These people have been very active. They've got a strong schooling system. What Duterte has done, his regime, has closed down a whole number of these schools. They've also attacked often the schools. Um, In the presentation that the students gave to us, they actually, again, like very distressing. A young 14-year-old describing what their life was like, about their lessons, about their life, but then how it's disrupted and the killings start. How teachers were killed in front of them, parents were killed, the the schools closed down and they went literally on the road. They call them mobile schools. Um, again, a little bit of good news here is that the Chancellor at the Philippines University has signed a memorandum of agreement with these people and these 70 um, students and some of their teachers and some of their elders 
uh, living at the university and we again an extraordinary experience is one big room for the boys one big room for the girls we're talking about teenagers here that's where they sleep that's where and again their bed when we arrive their bedding's all rolled up on the edges of this big room and that's where they get their lessons many of the lecturers at the university are assisting with their le- lessons as well as their teachers and then they've they've been allowed to live there for a number of months so not satisfactory at all but again you see the resilience and the um, unity amongst these people and that they were very the, the students were amazing to listen to like they identified that capitalism is a big problem in the world that it is these companies are ripping their way of life and their rights apart and, and that this is again going back to your question where environmental activists have been targeted and killed um, people who support people who are just trying to get on with their lives they want their kids to have an education they want their families to be happy and healthy and Duterte for his own interests and his supporters interests are going on these incredible attacks against people Did you get any understanding of what's happened to the people of the city of Malawi which the government just virtually destroyed on Mindanao? I haven't got a great deal of details on that but one of the things that I was going to pursue that we need to work out about the Australian government involvement here because um, it was certainly raised, I was actually asked to do that because they're concerned how the Australian government is giving assistance to the Filipino military and it's often the military who are then perpetrating crimes like the police force and the paramilitary are against people there. So this is a worrying aspect of successive Australian governments who have assisted repressive um, military in Indonesia, particularly against the West Papuans, against the East Timorese once. In Burma, Myanmar, uh, I've heard that, that we've also got that relationship. So I think these are issues that we need to follow up in Australia. Did you talk to many people from the peasant farming communities and the, the farmers, the small farmers who have been threatened by the paramilitaries and the military? Not as much as I would like because of security reasons it was judged we shouldn't get out of Manila. But some um, did give us presentations in Manila. We had one afternoon where there was a whole range of people from peasants from an excellent group called Rise Up, which is representing the victims of the war on crime from um, some of these relocated communities and other communities as I said, some of the peasant communities and the indigenous communities. And that again had painted a, it's a similar story. This war on drugs, which is largely a war on the urban poor, the attacks on the indigenous people on Mindanao, where they've got martial law, and Malawi, where the, uh, the war was waged, there's that similar theme that runs through here. The Duterte regime is out to terrorise people, it is state terrorism I think you need to recognise that and call it for what it is intimidate people and, and ultimately jail, they're jailing their critics of all forms, activists of many many forms um, and many community leaders and also some politicians Did you get an understanding of, of just how many of these people have been jailed and the situation of that jail because they can be sent to jail with no charge and remain there for a long time without actually going to court? Yes, like this is where there's a breakdown of this human rights um, situation enormously. Actually, what was very useful is that while we were there, we got a, a message 
to our delegation, which was organised under the Australian Pacific Assembly of um, the group that looks at human rights in the Philippines. And it was from the political prisoners of the Philippines. And I, I didn't get to Negros, but some of my colleagues reported they actually got into the jail to meet with many of these political prisoners. And they gave a very strong political statement just identifying how this was, again, I'll use that term, state terrorism, and how laws are being weaponised, um, the independence of the judiciary is being undermined, and that, that's being done. So it's easier for the police and the military to get convictions, to justify um, their counterinsurgency plans. It's just going on on so many levels. You're listening to an interview with Lee Rhiannon, former Australian senator from the Australian Greens Party, talking about her recent week in the Philippines. One important area is journalism, and I'm wondering how they're being sat on at the moment, because if they can keep everything out of the mainstream or whatever by threatening or killing journalists but then there's the social media did you get an understanding of how widespread social media is there? Oh, social media is huge for them it's something that they rely on enormously I wanted to so I've got some things to follow up, up with um, obviously and I was fortunate that on the last Saturday the uh, various student groups came together in a big conference called Defend, excuse me, Defend Press Freedom, Defend Human Rights and the Secretary of the Philippine Journalist Union was addressing them and they were really impressive the um, young students in their 20s, many of them were the editors of the papers at their universities and they're very committed to supporting um, the Indigenous people, workers had a strong understanding of the importance of the union movement for bring, building up um, a big social movement to take on what is happening in this country because a number of their people, a number of journalists have been killed. Like It, it is a ruthlessness that I know has happened in other countries, but when you hear the testimonies firsthand, it's really disturbing. Often people say this is worse than the Marcos years. Well, that certainly that came through time and time again. That was a really, you know, incredibly serious. But it's many people felt that it had gone to a new level. So, um, and it's interesting that the the way that the opposition within the parliament is certainly small, but there are some courageous people. And we had a very interesting meeting with the staff of Senator Leila De Lima, and she's had a long, very courageous history of standing up for human rights in um, the Philippines and also standing up to drug tra trafficking. But she's now in jail, charged that she is she had been drug trafficking, which has just trumped up charges because Duterte clearly wanted to remove her because she was really using the parliamentary process in a really fantastic way to be able to work with many of these communities and highlight how Duterte was using, misusing the police and the military to create this reign of terror. So her case is amazing. She's been in jail two and a half years now. Um, she was arrested in February 2017. It's clearly politically motivated um, and something that really would suit Duterte down to the ground. 
Did you meet any of the people from the DPO where the Oceanic Gold Mine is? I didn't actually meet those, the, the people directly near their mine, but some of the Indigenous young people that um, I was just describing, they come from near that area um, and certainly featured in the presentation that we gave. This is um, Oceana Gold, is the Australian-Canadian mining giant, and we saw the photos of the levels of destruction that's being wrought there. And you know, they described how you know they lose when the these big mining companies come in, when they lose their land, they're losing their livelihood and they, as in the Indigenous people who spoke to us, are associating when some of their people have been killed that that actually benefits these mining companies and the plantation owners because it makes it easier for them to clear more land, to exploit the local people, to disregard the law and all the other things that they just get away with with these massive operations that are occurring, occurring across much of Mindanao. You also met with concerned government officials. Who were they? One that was a standout one was the Human Rights Commissioner. She ran through up that. That, that was towards, it might have been one of the last um, meetings that we were having. So by now we've heard about the uh, how the state terrorism has played out, about the relocations, um, what's happening to the school students who are literally on the move so they can try and keep their school going. So we've he heard all this. She runs through a lot of that again, so that was good for her to give a summary. But then she actually said how this can be traced back to the highest office in the land. They were her words. And I thought that was really interesting coming from the Human Rights Commissioner, uh, and this is a huge operation, a big building, they're doing, you know, they've got programs all over the place. I, I was, you know, like in the Philippines, it's still very surprising that way, is that there's huge political organisations, you know, work, continuing to do very, very important work. And this was an example which I suppose I wasn't really expecting because, you know, they rely on government money, etc. But she used those words. And that was certainly the conclusion that our delegation had come to. All the evidence that we were hearing shows that this Duterte regime is ruthless and that they are responsible for crimes against humanity on a massive scale. The Catholic Church has always been an important body in the Philippines. Did you talk to anyone from that organisation and to get an understanding of, of, of where their role is at the moment? The Catholic Church figured in a, a number of the meetings that we were at, but it wasn't just the Catholic Church. There was other... I guess the last day that I was there was on Monday, Monday of this week. And so it's the day before International Human Rights Day, and I went to a function about commemorating human rights and a sort of a speak-out about some of the issues in the Philippines. What was interesting for me, a number of the people I'd met, like the young students, the Indigenous people who were the high school students now living at the university were there. There were some of the uh, religious people that I'd met. But it was even more comprehensive this time, is that there was Muslims, there was Catholics, there was the Church of Christ, Methodist people, then Indigenous people, there was people from various left-wing organisations. And not only are they giving their speeches, which, being frank about most, I, I couldn't understand. Some of it was translated for me. But just watching the interaction with people, learning how 
that event was organised and after it was finished, we actually went outside for a, a torchlight parade in front of a big wall where all the names of the martyrs are written up. And what really was so impressive and what was really, really, made a, you know, I guess meant a lot to everybody, was seeing the cooperation between these different groups. And, and Sister Pat, who you've probably interviewed at some time, maybe? Well, Sister Pat was given an award. Many other people were given awards. And there was a collaboration and strength that made me come away feeling more positive about it. Because, obviously, I mean, I'm not in any way, you know, experience the horrors of these people. But when you hear about it, it was very, very distressing. But it was certainly reassuring um, and inspiring, I have to say, seeing and hearing how these communities are reacting, religious, non-religious and progressive politics, all in all together. I'd imagine you would have met some people who would have worked with Pat? Oh, very much so. They, they, and I've emailed um, Sister Pat already. I hope to meet her when I get to Melbourne next. I haven't had that opportunity so far, but they asked me to send um, greetings to her and they said how much they miss her. So, yeah, very, very, very warm to her. One of your team was from the Green Party in New Zealand. I'm just wondering what people talk to you about climate change in the Philippines because some, some of the typhoons or whatever they call them there have been really horrific in recent years. Many people displaced from their homes, killed, whole livelihoods destroyed. So, well, we were, like I arrived a day late and some of my colleagues on the delegation, we were late because our flight had to be rescheduled because of the typhoon that came in. It, and it, I think it killed 17 people. So what you just said is occurring with greater frequency like so many of these extreme weather events. The communities there are very conscious of it. In the um, presentation that the students gave us when we were at the university included issues about climate change and the pressures that their islands are already under because of the rapidity with which greenhouse gas, gas emissions are increasing. I came across it there and also on that last day that I just mentioned where we had these various religious groups and left-wing bodies speaking about human rights that the again it came up about climate change there. What the people in the Philippines, they know they've got high poverty. The congestion in Manila is just uh, simply unacceptable, makes life dysfunctional. Then there's the um, disparity um, in the rural communities, like where there's so few f services for people. There's many problems. And then they've got climate change. That's what they want to be addressing. They want to make it a fair and just society. So many people spoke to me about that. So they wanted to speak about Duterte's crimes and how they want a global voice of support to expose what the Duterte regime is um, doing and to uh, fight against it on a global level and to give them support in the Philippines. But they also want the world to know that what their passion is, is to be working for a better, fairer society, a just society. Was there any feeling that you were being followed, you were being watched while you were there? The people that had come to see you were being watched or followed? Look, I didn't feel it and it was certainly not raised. But I must admit, having seen, you know, read about some of these, how these situations play out and just conscious of what happens in other countries, I would have been surprised if there wasn't somebody just 
checking out what was going on and what we were doing. But I'd have no evidence of that. Well, what are you going to do with the information that you've gathered during that week? The priority is preparing this submission to go to the uh, Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, uh, linked with the United Nations Human Rights Council. So that's a priority. As a delegation, we already have a report um, to assist us now that we're back in our home countries. I know there's been a protest in New Zealand. We had a protest in Sydney outside the Philippines consulate that was by a number of unions. That was, that was really good, actually. It was good to come back to where we could make a, um, some solid contribution. What was presented there was there was a letter from the global... The, the Council, sorry, the Council of Global Unions that was presented to the Philippines consulate um, with a whole number of demands to the authorities in the Philippines, particularly around union members and leaders' issues because of their concern, growing concerns about their safety. So it covered issues about guaranteeing the security and safety of all union members, allowing unions to operate without government interference because that was regularly raised with us. It's very hard for all that unions to actually operate. Then there, there's a big issue that some of the workers raise is the issue of contracts. Often they're put on contracts, not dissimilar from some of the issues going on in Australia. And so they're not getting in with the advantages of being a permanent worker. Uh, they also want to, um, this was in the um, statement to the Philippine consulate, they want them to accept an ILO, International Labour Organisation, tripartite mission to come and investigate, which I think, you know, if Duterte was half reasonable, he should really grant that. I imagine he'll run a mile from it. But the big one is obviously what was put in that letter was the respecting workers' fundamental rights as guaranteed by international standards. And that's, that's what the International Labour Organisation has many conventions that set those out. Just travelling around Manila, listening to people, reading the reports, the, the abuse of people going around their work and working conditions, ripping off wages, not paying proper money, was extreme. Uh, at the start of when we started talking, I gave the um, example of the woman whose husband was shot in the street and she was now the breadwinner. Not only is she working from 4am to after 5pm, she found out she gets paid half of what she should get paid. Again, not dissimilar to some of the shocking stories we hear about the hospitality industry here. Yeah, all these battles are going on. Do you hope to schedule meetings with Australian parliamentarians? Oh, yes, very much so. And we were directly asked when, when we met um, Senator Layla de Lima and some of, while I was at that meeting, some of my colleagues were meeting with some of the opposition, some of the opposition MPs in the House of Representatives what that they actually put a very direct request because they understand how parliament works could your parliamentarians speak about about the Duterte regime is doing to this country about the reign of state terrorism the abuse of people and also they requested a motion about those crimes against humanity be put to our parliaments and they understood that it might well get defeated but they really asked for that to happen looking back on that weekly what are your main concerns, the highlights of the trip, what would you like to see done in the immediate term? Oh, 
Well, look, I think the immediate issue, while I think it's fantastic that we had the protest this week and the statement came out from the global, the Council of Global Unions, the New Zealanders have taken action and I know my colleagues in the other countries on the delegation are also working on their responses. Whether the direction all this work needs to take is building a widespread global understanding and opposition to what the Duterte regime has has done. Not dissimilar to how we organised to end apartheid in South Africa. Not dissimilar to how so much of the world is mobilising for a free Palestine. We have to have that global awareness that will put a pressure on our respective governments to put the heat on the Duterte Duterte regime because at the moment Western governments are ignoring what's going on in the Philippines. Australian government spends all this time abusing China, but when it comes to the Philippines, barely a word is uttered. Mr Trump is quite close to US President Mr Trump. He's quite close to Duterte. So we really have a big job, but certainly the movement is building, and what I think is so important of going on the delegations like the one I was on, it really does inspire people to put more effort into working with the Filipino people so they can um, live in peace, but peace with justice and follow their their dreams and their commitments to build a just, fair society. And just to finish, we have to acknowledge that there are certain people in Australia and other countries who can't now go to the Philippines. They're being blacklisted for their support for the people. Yes, well, I don't think many people know that, that people who have been uh, working in solidarity with the Filipinos and one is my colleague Peter Murphy who organised the protests that we had outside the Philippines consulate um, a couple of days ago been working in this area for a long time he now at the moment can't travel to the Philippines the people I met on the delegation they all had colleagues in their countries who were blacklisted in one way or another which again shows a theme of the Duterte regime is to stamp our criticism whether it's jailing a senator, whether it's blacklisting activists from overseas, whether it's um, bringing in a reign of terror against school children in Mindanao or workers or the urban poor on the edge of Manila. Like, like it's very extreme what is happening in that country. Okay, well thank you very much. Thank you, Jen. And that was former Green Senator Lee Rhiannon and I recorded that interview with Lee at the end of last year. Yalakut Willem Nagi, Australia's First Nations Festival, returns Saturday, February 1st with soulful live music and free family entertainment. Get your funk on to Emma Donovan and the Putbacks, plus Coloured Stone, Kian, the Struggling Kings, Kihu, and loads more music from the finest First Nations artists in Australia. Eat and browse your way through market stalls or get hands-on at the many workshops and activities on offer. Yalakut Willem Nagi proudly celebrates Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures across one day where everyone is welcome. Head to ywnf.com.au for details. City of Port Phillip and Yalakut Willem Nagi, 3CR supporters. Speaking now with Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. New Year, let's start with the good news. 
2020. It's going to be a good one, all right. Yes, um, Southern Cross University up in Lismore has just established a new undergraduate degree course in regenerative farming. This is going to be good, I think, because the way industrial agriculture in Australia is going at the moment, lots of fantasies about it being a $100 billion industry by 2030 and so on. It's just fanciful dream stuff. But what we really most urgently need is a transition out of the industrial model and into regenerative farming so we can start refocusing on soil quality, water availability and appropriate crops for this dry continent, not things like rice and uh, cotton. I think that this new farming course up in uh, Southern Cross is going to be very good. Uh, it's got some excellent people uh, running it. Charles Massey, who's his recent book on uh, regenerative agriculture, and also Bruce Pascoe, uh, the, the author of Dark Emu, about the history of agriculture in Australia, which has a thousands of years' history under the custodianship of Indigenous people and to be among the people giving their wisdom to the young students. So hopefully that over time will make a difference with oil running out, phosphates running out and industrial agriculture on the back foot uh, in order even to feed Australians. I think we need a radical rethink and this regenerative farming degree course starting this year is going to be a very positive contribution to that I think. This is a world first. Where did the impetus come from? From a group called Regenerative Agriculture Australia. Kerry Cochran, uh, who was teaching at uh, Southern Cross, has been working on this for a number of years, and finally it's come to fruition. Great congratulations to him and his team. Just hope that they get good students, that the course is a great success and attracts more students in the future as well. Another thing, of course, um, is popular culture that sees the agricultural news media now giving coverage to real examples, organic farmers and others who are using regenerative methods. There's a, a new film out just started last week in, in the movie houses around Australia called The Biggest Little Farm, which will also, I think, give a boost to the public consciousness about the need for a change. The Biggest Little Farm is about a couple who were living in Los Angeles but had this dream of going on the land. So they got themselves a couple of hundred acres that had been resumed by the banks that had gone broke next door to a um, defunct chicken farm that used to house 2.3 million chickens. Anyway, they got their 200 acres and over the last decade they've turned it into a little ecological system that's actually managed to turn the desert into a um, very productive and beautiful farm, of course, with a lot of problems along the way. But it's a very amusing film. It's life-affirming and amusing. It's a lot of fun. Take the kids. Enjoy. It really just is very good, and I think that um, that is the kind of thing that will turn public consciousness onto, onto the need for some radical changes in Australia as well. What are they producing on their 200 acres? Oh, well, a whole multitude of things. Uh, but I guess their central activity is fruit trees, which, of course, have been used to regenerate um, the landscape in lots of ways, but have also 
had their share of um, birds and insects and other things attacking them. So part of the story is overcoming those great challenges that all farmers have to actually produce a crop and to um, work in harmony with nature but also protect the farming system from the predations of organisms, whether they're birds, insects, microorganisms, weeds and other things in the environment that are needed to, um, to produce our food. It turns out when you read on the web, although it's not in the movie, that in fact the biggest little farm is actually biodynamic using cultured animal manures to uh, increase the fertility and, uh, of the soil and to actually make it into a little productive oasis. It's very good. See it by all means. and It opened on January the 16th nationally and should be in a theatre near you. From Southern California to South Australia and the, the battle continues over the GM-free status of that state. Yes, that's right. South Australia's been GM-free as far as um, commercial crops and animals are concerned since 2003 when all the governments in Australia imposed moratoria. In 2003, GM canola was approved by the National Regulator for commercial growing, but all of the states... Uh, said we think that it's going to affect our international markets. Uh, they had just won the very uh, premium Europe market uh, from Canada, which was growing GM canola by then, and uh, we've maintained that market ever since, and our canola goes into Europe at a premium over the GM varieties. So genetic manipulation uh, hasn't been the bonanza that people have claimed, and South Australia... Tasmania, the ACT and Northern Territory still remain uh, free of genetically manipulated crops. And in South Australia, uh, that ban was set to continue until 2025, but the Marshall Liberal government, which was elected about 18 months ago, has been very, very strenuously trying to overthrow the ban to allow GM canola and other crops into the state. It's just canola at the moment, but um, there are other things in the pipeline and on the horizon. And we're arguing, of course, that 2025 is a good time uh, to review uh, the moratorium because by then the new genetic engineering techniques that are now coming online with their products will be clearer. We'll be able to see what the future holds. But for the moment, we're working very hard. Uh, the government has tried now uh, three times to overturn the ban. They did it by regulation in the first place, which was disallowed by the upper house of the parliament. Then they next day introduced a bill, which was also defeated. And then very sneakily, after the um, uh, parliament had recessed for the summer break and won't go back until February, the government again deregulated GM canola and said it could be grown from January the 1st. There will be another disallowance motion next month from the Greens uh, when the Parliament resumes. And we are hopeful again that the Labor Party and the other crossbench, South Australia Best, which is the remnants of the old Xenophon Party, uh, will again disallow the regulation. Uh, so we're working very hard on that. The government is not going to get its own way so easily. We think that um, these manoeuvres uh, are just 
a commitment that the government's made to the GM industry and uh, that they appear very, very determined and we, for our part, are very determined that they will not win. South Australia can greatly benefit, as Tasmania is already doing, from remaining GM-free. Indeed, uh, the proposal in South Australia is to leave Kangaroo Island GM-free because it is reaping big premiums, particularly into the Japanese market, for its or another grains and oil seeds as well as a result of being GM-free. The whole state has done that and can continue to do it, uh, provided uh, this works out well and we think the moratorium uh, will remain in place until 2025. Just as an aside, Bob, are you aware of the damage on Kangaroo Island to the farming areas? We are, of course, and um, like so many other places around Australia, the damage from the bushfires is huge. There's no question that global climate change is, is happening. And, of course, the GM industry tries to wedge us by always, and, and the politicians by always saying, well, you believe the independent climate science, um, despite the denial of, of many of these same politicians. So why don't you accept the science on genetically manipulated crops, animals and microorganisms? Well, the thing about that science is that it, it is an information gathering tool. It's not religion. The corporate science produces corporate outcomes. And of course, they have overwhelmingly got control of global agrochemicals and also of seed. So they want to sell their GM seed. They get a premium for the seed and they sell the chemicals with it. So it's a profit-driven scientific conclusion that they come to. And I think there are still many, many serious questions about the environmental impacts of GM crops. Uh, there are some questions still about uh, whether they're safe and healthy to eat. I think just generally we ought to be sceptical of science that's done by corporations for their own purposes, whereas um, the climate change, which is wreaking havoc on Australia and in particular on Kangaroo Island, is pretty sound, publicly funded uh, by independent scientists globally, and I think it's about time that our governments did something about it, including a transition from industrial agriculture to sustainable, more resilient and probably fireproofed farming systems uh, that we're going to need for, uh, for the future of feeding Australians. An issue that we spoke about many times last year, Bob, was the court cases regarding Bayer Monsanto and there are now over 40,000 cases in the, the US targeting that company because of glyphosate. There seems yes. to be a move to limit the damage to the company. Oh, absolutely, yes. They've been trying to keep out of court and to start negotiations with the thousands of people who have now got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. This cancer is clearly induced by exposure, repeated exposure to glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup herbicide. The company is now trying to wriggle out of its liability by saying that, well, it couldn't have put labels giving a cancer warning or other warnings about the use and uh, potential hazards of Roundup and its active ingredient glyphosate because that would have violated what the U.S. Environment Protection Agency had uh, decided 
which was that glyphosate was not a human carcinogen, was therefore safe to use, and the EPA did not require a warning label. So the company, in a chicken and egg kind of situation, is saying, well, the regulators said it was safe, we believed it was safe, we weren't required to label it, so we didn't need to tell anybody, and uh, therefore you don't have a case against us. Blimey, if that stands up in court, we're in real trouble. And, of course, now in Australia there are two class actions, one filed in the federal court uh, late last year and another in a court in Victoria uh, making the same sorts of allegations, and particularly that Monsanto didn't tell users uh, that they were at risk of um, cancer. I wouldn't be surprised if the company doesn't here in Australia say, well, the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority says it's safe. Why would we have labelled it differently? They're the ones who require the label. They're the ones who, who specify what's required to be on the label. And, of course, the label doesn't contain any serious warnings. Don't blame us. Blame the regulator. It's a scam, and let's hope it doesn't work. Because, of course, the thousands of people who have got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma as a result of um, being exposed do deserve to be compensated. In the three cases that were settled last year in the USA, of course, awarded $80 million to the four plaintiffs in those cases, $80 million each. The company would be in trouble if it does have to pay out, but it's really looking for wriggle room as fast as it can go. Any way of trying to uh, get itself out of potential liability of something like at least 10, but perhaps up to $100 billion as a result of these cases. It's not a pretty picture. Any idea how long this issue could take to resolve it? Years, of course. One never knows quite how these things are going to go, but um, court cases are pretty glacial, and many of the complainants are now in mediation, court-directed mediation, uh, with the company, whether they'll be offered maybe five million bucks a piece to go away and keep quiet and not say what deal was done. That would be the kind of modus operandi I think that Bayer and Monsanto would be entering into at this point to try to get these people off their backs for a fairly token amount to get it off the plate so that um, Bayer, which now owns Monsanto, can on with making profits and recovering its share price, which took a big 30% tumble as a result of these cases last year. What would it take to get glyphosate out of the systems? Well, I think it will take grassroots action. Councils in Australia in particular are now under enormous pressure as a result of the US cases to take Roundup out of their weed management systems, and I think that's the way to begin. People are in touch with their local councils. We have a, a petition and a briefing paper that um, many of our constituents have now put to their councils. Probably something of the order of 50 councils around Australia are now uh, considering alternatives to using glyphosate-based herbicides for weed management, things like weed steamers and some safe organic alternatives. Some of them have already decided not to use Roundup anymore, uh, particularly in sensitive areas like around schools, in parks uh, where animals and children can be exposed. I think it's that kind of action which will gradually spin off to other 
big users of these chemicals like land care and also the farming community, golf courses which are an incredibly big user of uh, synthetic chemicals as well. These people are all going to have to sit up and take notice uh, once we get the local council ball seriously rolling. Do have a look on our website or contact Gene Ethics and we can supply the the petitions and the briefing paper people can use uh, with their own local councils uh, to get a review of the weed management practices locally. And there are some examples. For example, the city of Yarra has now um, adopted weed steaming for those high-sensitive areas at a very reasonable cost of $1 per resident per year. It can be done, it should be done, and we are moving in that direction. Another issue we talked about last year was the Chinese baby maker and he's um, fallen on his sword now as well as a couple of others who are working with him. That's right, yes. Um, They made um, three genetically manipulated babies and their fate is still not publicly known either. But we hope they are safe and well and that they are being well cared for. This was a, a world first, of course, genetic engineering of uh, human embryos to create three babies whose new genetic makeup will be passed on to future generations. That had been uh, banned globally under a voluntary moratorium among human gene researchers for a number of years. Now the dam has burst and of course I I suspect that a whole lot of other people are thinking about it as well. In any event, the, the three researchers who were directly involved in this were quietly disappeared about 12 months ago. Um, We didn't quite know what had happened to them. But they came into court in December, have been jailed. Uh, The lead researcher has got three years and the others lesser sentences and have been fined extraordinary sums of money. One and a half million US dollars was the top fine and uh, a ban for life on doing further human research. You know, a moderate penalty for what they did, I think, but um, there wasn't any particular law against it. It's just that the court decided and they did plead guilty to pursuing their own personal fame and gain and that they had, by their actions um, of, for example, forging the uh, approval from the Ethics Committee, that they had, quote, disrupted medical order, end of quote. So... The Chinese authorities do have rules in place. Uh, They were seen as um, rogue investigators and um, they've reaped the consequences. Of course, a lot of overseas people like George Church at Harvard, who's also breaking his neck to do this work, Craig Venter, who has been one of the great innovators in um, synthetic biology in particular, were very, very critical of what um, these guys had done, but if we're going public saying it was reckless. For instance, um, Venter said uh, that it was reckless human experimentation on genome editing of human embryos. That was all fine, but these guys and others in March last year were proposing that they formalise a set of rules which would stop just short of doing the sort of human germline genetic manipulation that uh, the Chinese scientists had done but would allow them free a free-for-all on anything else that just should be publicly unacceptable we need a, a proper public discussion and debate 
about exactly where these lines are going to be drawn. But there is no forum for such public debate at the moment. In Australia here, I can say really that the Therapeutic Goods Administration, people like the Australian Health Ethics Committee and the National Health and Medical Research Council are really out of touch with the public. They're like approaching a black box. You can't tell what they're thinking or doing. And they run on not laws and regulations, but guidelines. They set the guidelines for research with very little public consultation or discussion. And as a result, I believe that our research community here is not properly regulated either, and that people would be seriously shocked if they knew what was going on and being allowed behind the scenes the pretext that this kind of research is going to uh, produce good outcomes for sick people. That's the usual thing. We're working on therapies. People are sick. We want to solve the problems. But what we find is that uh, the groups who are advocating for these kinds of remedies often groups that you can be very, very sympathetic to, people who are suffering particular diseases, often quite rare diseases that are not well known about. These are generally sponsored by the pharmaceutical industry. People like Bayer, again, of course, because it has a big uh, finger in that pie as well as crop science, their advocacy really is on behalf of um, the pharmaceutical interests rather than, um, I'd say, the general public interest. We need to be getting a handle on some of these vanguard activities and techniques, and the public needs to be much more uh, strongly engaged in deciding what the morality and the ethics of these things are going to be, because um, there are draw lines to be drawn. Uh, they're not being drawn clearly. The ethics of some of the things that are done uh, really need to have attention drawn to them. Finally, Bob, what are they doing with our little native quails? <laughs> yes, this is terrific. Getting off the humans onto the wildlife as well. There's a group of researchers at Melbourne Uni who um, want to just tweak a couple of genes in the northern quoll because uh, these poor little quolls are becoming rare and endangered as a resulting of biting the poisonous cane toad. Dr. Frankenberger, if you can really believe that guy's name, must be a bit unfortunate for him uh, in this debate about um, Frankenstein foods and so on, which we is just a mischaracterization of the whole thing, really. Anyway, his group at the Melbourne Uni want to tweak the quolls, but I think it's important to... Um, Note that there's also been some very excellent research elsewhere in Australia, particularly up north, to try to get quolls actually in the environment to learn not to bite the cane toads. So they've done this research where they've made sausages out of cane toads, sort of a mince, and they've laced that with a chemical that makes the quolls nauseous and hopefully doesn't kill them, but teaches them that if they bite the cane toad, they're going to end up feeling rather sick, and it's not an advisable thing to do. I think that's going to be a more sensible, well-thought-out and good idea. Aversion therapy for quolls, yes. Genetic engineering for quolls, not a good idea in our view. Uh, the government of Western Australia has already started to deliver the t 
case diversion sausages in a trial in um, Kimberley. It seems to be working quite well. And so I think the sensible thing to do is to leave the uh, northern quoll's genome and its genetics alone and get on with trying to teach these rather fast learners um, that they shouldn't uh, mess with cane toads. Cane toads, of course, the exemplary example of introducing uh, a silly biocontrol measure into the uh, sugar cane fields. The cane toads were supposed to eat the cane beetles. They never did, but they're poison and they became uh, one of the major ecological threats to, to northern Australia. Something's got to be done about the cane toad, but I don't think genetically engineering the quolls to protect them is a very smart idea. Thanks again to Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. And you are listening to 3CR, and the time is coming up to 26 minutes past 5 o'clock. And in a moment we'll hear about what's happening with human rights activists in Western Sahara and journalists, and also a push by health organisations to force the federal government to acknowledge climate catastrophe or climate emergency. Wear your Radical Radio colours in one of 3CR's new T-shirts. The bright new design comes straight from this year's popular Radiothon poster designed by Aisha Tufa. T-shirts cost $30 to pick up or $37 with postage. So drop into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Call 9419-8377 to place your order. Or buy one online at 3cr.org.au slash shop. 3CR Radical Radio T-shirts. Get one one now. With me now is Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association and once again Kate the important issue of freedom of expression freedom of the press is at the forefront of this monthly report on the situation in Western Sahara this time the focus is Sahrawi journalist Walid Salek al-Batal and his treatment has resulted in intervention by a UN rights body. What are the sequence of events that's led up to this urgent appeal? The journalist who's called uh, Walid al-Batal, who's uh, fairly young, he's, he's in his 20s, he was arrested on the 7th of June last year and then he was detained and but badly treated and so this led to international attention with Frontline Defenders which is an Irish human rights organisation and the Organisation Mondiale contre la Torture uh, the World Organisation Against Torture and they pressed for his immediate release he was forced to sign police records that sort of incriminated him, but he wasn't, uh, weren't uh, a true account of what had happened. And he was sentenced to uh, two years imprisonment in November for assault of public officials and possession of weapons. Uh, none of that is probably true. Or at least the, he, I don't know whether it was probably the pu- public officials assaulting him by the sound of what happened. It's taken a, a, a few months that was then addressed to the UN Human Rights Mechanism for making an urgent appeal. 
they published a joint communication in January calling on Morocco to observe its international obligations and not prosecute journalists who are just carrying out their duties. It was very clearly a political discrimination that was happening in his case. There are many other journalists who suffered the same way. It's really just that Morocco doesn't want there to be journalism done about what's going on. They don't wish the rest of the world to find out. They like to carry on with impunity oppressing the Sahrawi people. But fortunately, there are some of these people keeping uh, watch on the situation and, and getting the stories out. And there are at least four others in jails at the moment? There are, yes, that's right. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a general thing. It's not just Walid, but I think because of his case was maybe better documented or something like that, they were able to make a special appeal, sort of focused on him, but they mentioned these other journalists as well. And what does the appeal mean? Where does it go from there? I'm not completely sure, but I think that Morocco might even be a member of the Human Rights Council. It has in the, at times been a member, ironic though that is. Australia is also a member, so there isn't a real ob- obligation to be observing human rights to be on the Human Rights Council. However, uh, I think they are just, it's just a way of putting extra pressure on, on Morocco to allow freedom of press and freedom of expression. Are any of these Western Saharans who are jailed, actually jailed in a prison in Western Sahara, or do they all get sent to Morocco? I'm afraid I'm not sure where they are. There certainly are plenty of Sahrawis in the prison in El Ayun, but the ones who are serving sentences connected to the, the mass protest called G'day Mizik that happened in 2010, those are all up in, in Morocco, and they've been dispersed they were all in the one prison, so they at least had each other's company, but then the Moroccans thought that that was too kind, and they were dispersed into separate prisons, some of them in, in solitary confinement. It's made it very difficult for their families to visit them. Is there any way that human rights defenders can keep an eye on these prisoners, whether they're in Morocco or Western Sahara? Oh, yes, I think... There are. I mean, they do allow their own solicitors to go in or their lawyers and members of the family sometimes. I mean, we know, we've talked on this program before about the French wife of one of the more notorious members of the Gedemizi group called Nama Asfari. He has a French wife who has been banned from visiting for some time and then after a lot of pressure they finally let her visit him but she hasn't been allowed back since then when you say notorious what do you mean by that whenever there's something happening he's there even though he's living a lot of the time in france but he will go and certainly when they had this mass walkout protest he would be down there i suppose he's notorious from the point of view of the moroccans particularly too because his father also served a time in, in prison when he was a child. He was brought up by his grandfather and uh, another relative, I think. His mother may have died. I forget exactly what happened. But um, he just has managed to get across the 
authorities a lot of times, Nama, and they were really wanting to get him. And, of course, the ironic thing is they were clearly wanting to get him. He wasn't there the day that they broke up the camp, but they nevertheless charged him with so-called crimes that took place during that event. So the whole thing was a complete stitch-up, but he still hasn't been, just because it's sorry, it has no foundation, hasn't meant that he could be released. The court just finds what the Moroccan authorities want them to find, and, and even the appeal didn't work either. How many years is he facing in jail still? I think he's got at least 20 years still to go. I think it was a 30-year sentence. I'm not quite sure about that. I think so. 20 or 30 anyway, yes. The sort of thing that totalitarian governments do to people who don't agree with what they're doing. And he knew that this could happen, I suppose, but he wants to try and fight for the rights of his people so that this is the way he sees to do it. From one form of human rights abuses to another, and one I'm thinking about is the theft of resources, We've talked about this many times before and it's mainly the phosphate. It doesn't come to Australia at the moment, but it does still go to New Zealand and the ship that took it to New Zealand was greeted by a demonstration? Yes, the New Zealand group seemed to have managed to put together quite an active uh, lot who like doing these actions and they were planning this uh, to greet the ship with a flotilla of kayaks and there was also a ferry carrying school children and went out to greet the ship when it came into Littleton Harbour which is the harbour of Christchurch in the South Island it had already dropped off some of the cargo in Napier in the North Island and afterwards it went down to Dunedin or Bluff at the uh, far south of New Zealand but uh, yes I think it was quite a lively protest they had 80 activists singing protest songs on the shore as well as this flotilla of little boats they handed a letter to the ship's captain saying that if they tried to stop the protest the union would not unload the cargo this got quite good coverage in the New Zealand press and Ravensdown have felt obliged to publish a statement defending their position and now actually the uh, Western Sahara campaign in New Zealand has got the uh, Western Sahara Resource Watch to respond to Ravensdown's statement that was published by the online news service called scoop.co.nz it will be interesting to see if they come back again after that because I think it was a fairly definitive demolition of, of their case. And it was also taken up by the BBC, the issue of um, phosphate coming from Western Sahara, painted as Moroccan. Exactly, that was interesting. That um, it, It's very nicely done and it's got uh, interviews with people that we know from Australia, such as the Sahrawi representative Kamal Fadel and the Professor Stuart White, who's at the University of Technology in Sydney, he's a, quite an expert on phosphate and he's the Professor of Sustainable Futures or something like that, his chair is called. And so he's quite interesting. And it's, uh, the, the program is called The Conflict Mineral That Feeds the World and they 
do stress the importance of phosphate as a prerequisite for food, both plants and animals, because animals need to eat the plants that are fed with the phosphate. What the future is for a finite resource, it's, as they call it, a fossil mineral. It's not a renewable resource, and it's not something that can be manufactured in any way. Nearest you can do to manufacturing it is to recycle it, and that there's a huge amount of work going on in Europe about that and other parts of the world, I'm sure, too. But the one that I've seen are called a European group. Many European towns are recycling sewage, uh, recovering the phosphate from sewage, for example, and using it. And, and, and it goes into uh, foodstuffs, in fact, like uh, Coca-Cola have recovered phosphate in their uh, product. It, it is a very pressing issue, really, for, the, for food security in the world in general. So it, was, it starts off about a lot of that, but then they move on to the fact that Morocco holds by far the biggest source of phosphate in the Earth's crust. They've got a huge mine. He goes to this mine in Morocco proper called Horiba, which is very deep and very long, 12 kilometers long. They've been mining there for many years, and he thinks that the person he speaks to says that they will be able to mine for many, many more years to come. So they're not worried at all about the future, they say. However, when it comes to other phosphate that Morocco claims is theirs, which it really comes from Western Sahara, and then it becomes what he calls the conflict mineral because it is in an area that is under conflict. There is an uh, ongoing issue that hasn't been resolved relating to that and it shouldn't, according to us on the side of Western Sahara people, the uh, phosphate belongs to the Saharawis and it should not be being exploited without their consent. And of course the issue is how much money they've made out of exploiting Western Sahara phosphate. Oh yes, it's quite a, a, a significant part of the GDP. that They, sep- they don't separate the Sahrawi phosphate figure, they say something like 5% of the GDP, I think it was. But what proportion of that is Sahrawi, I don't know. Well, they're not going to acknowledge there's any, is it? Are they? They don't like to keep separate figures, not publish them anyway. They may keep the figures, but they don't publish separately what happens in Western Sahara because they want to say it all comes from Morocco, yeah. Well, staying with New Zealand for a moment, we had a very successful tour here of the Eastern Coast by a young human rights activist late last year, Tekba. She went to New Zealand from Australia. She did. Uh, in the end of October, she was across the Tasman in New Zealand and she did a, a huge tour. She went to all the main cities. She went to Auckland, she went to Wellington, Christchurch and Dunedin. Again, these wonderful new active group put on a lot of meetings for her and uh, they also got good press coverage all the time she was there she was raising the issue of phosphate as a main concern. We spoke last year about the awarding of a prestigious prize to Minotaur 
Hadar. Yes. The 2019 Right Livelihood Award. It's known as the Alternative Nobel Prize. The people in Western Sahara tried to celebrate her victory. They got short shift. Well, yes. Uh, the, the, the prize was actually bestowed. I mean, the, she, uh, the, the award was announced earlier, but she actually uh, went to Stockholm to receive the award on the 4th of December. It was jointly awarded to others, including Greta Thunberg, and a Brazilian indigenous leader and a, a Chinese lawyer. That was fine, but then on the 2nd of January, they wanted to celebrate in El Ayun the Association of Victims of Grave Violations of Human Rights wanted to hold a, or were holding a reception but their building was cordoned off the police wouldn't let anybody in so later on perhaps the next day or something they wanted to go and visit Aminatou Haidar herself and, and congratulate her but uh, there was a siege outside her house as well a few managed to get through but the uh, Right Livelihood Foundation's director expressed his concern and he said that he would the, the, their organisation would stand up for her protection and from harassment and intimidation by all possible means so I don't know quite what that's going to extend to but um, if you look on the website of the Right Livelihood Award you will see how the Nobel Prize was having pressure on them to have a human rights award and they'd extended the awards that they were giving but they decided to stop doing that this uh, right livelihood could be the organisation that would bestow it instead that's why they call it the alternative Nobel because it sort of is uh, would have been the Nobel but the, and the Nobel Peace Prize were, was you know, were asking them to, to do it so that's a perfectly, it's not just a um, casually awarded uh, accolade, it is like that it's really terrific for Aminatou and for the whole cause that she should receive it and it's really very shameful that the Moroccans won't allow the celebration of her award. Nevertheless I believe that her high profile gives her a certain amount of protection well, I guess it does because she was able to travel to Sweden to to be uh, to receive the award. Yeah, Bahim Dahan wasn't able to go and and get his award, and I think maybe others times she she might have been prevented sometimes. Yeah, we don't normally talk about sport relating to Western Sahara, but today it's two stories. One is bikes, and one is an eco race. Yes, the Africa. Eco race. It's a bit like the Paris Dakar uh, rally, but it, well, they they called it this other name, and it was following the similar route that the Paris Dakar used to do, and it was on the 7th of January that it was crossing into Western Sahara territory, uh, as it came started off uh, coming through Morocco, and that's when the Sahrawi representative to the United Nations, uh, Sidi Omar. He wrote to the United Nations Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, pointing out that they, you know, they shouldn't really allow it. 
and it was an example of Morocco's bad faith and the disregard of UN resolutions concerning Western Sahara. There was an interesting follow-up, though. That, I mean, that was like the formal thing happening, the big complaint. But the actual people set up a roadblock on the road as it would pass out of Western Sahara because there's a bit of territory there that is uh, Sahrawi and it, there's a, what they call a buffer zone between Mauritania and the military wall that the Moroccans have put up. There's been different kinds of dispute concerning this area known as Gyalgalat and they made their roadblock there and the vehicles had to display a Western Sahara flag in their windows they had to take the Moroccan ones out and they had to display as well a map that showed the territory of Western Sahara separated by a border from Morocco that uh, you know was, was their little way of making their protest which is really quite a, uh, a nice way of doing it I think coming up and I'm not quite sure exactly when it starts but I think it's uh, sometime in March a young man called Benjamin Ladra who's a human activist human rights activist from Sweden he's inviting people to join him in a project to raise awareness about Western Sahara by riding a bike from Japan to Western Sahara it will go through 30 countries until they reach Western Sahara in the spring of 2022. So anyone who's looking for a bit of adventure, who has plenty of time to spare and would like to have some fun, by all means, get in touch with him. He has a, a funding, a go-get funding page. You can get in touch with him through that. His uh, organisation is called Solidarity Rising. Uh, so if you googled got Solidarity Rising Bike 4 that is figure 4 Western Sahara you'd find it that way or you get gogetfunding.com slash bike for Western Sahara you could get in touch with Benjamin and, um, and uh, either contribute to his project or take part yourselves it would be fun to have an Australian among them plenty of work ahead for Orsa for 2020 Oh yes, there's going to be a picnic which uh, this year is taking place in Edinburgh Gardens. It commemorates the National Day which is the 27th of February but uh, it'll be the nearest weekend. So it's on the 1st of March, Sunday the 1st of March in Edinburgh Gardens and there'll be further details coming out and... uh, and I will publicise that through the online bulletin. And I'm sure I'll speak to you again before then, Kate. Hopefully, yes. <laughs> and it's Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. The Royal Australian College of Physicians, the Australian College of Emergency Medicine and the Australian College of Rural and Remote Medicine declared climate change a health emergency. The Australian Medical Association made a climate emergency declaration earlier this year. Doctors for the Environment are at the forefront of calls for immediate action to protect Australians from the unprecedented risks to their health from climate change. And the Medical Association for the Prevention of War recognises climate change and nuclear weapons 
as twin existential threats and is proud to endorse the Doctors for the Environment action. I'm speaking now with Dr Margie Beavers, who's the Vice President of MAPW. Margie, what would it mean if the Federal Government recognised climate change as a public health emergency and act urgently in accordance with the science? The recent bushfires really are a clear example of change in weather patterns and then the impact that's having on the Australian landscape. And for people, particularly farmers and people who are actually very close to the areas that have been burnt, the fact that Australia is not recognising this and not acting sort of compounds the problem because not only do they have the, what they're facing now, but the future looks incredibly bleak. And Australia in Madrid was an actual spoiler. I mean, it stopped stronger action going through. So I think the, the mental health impacts of Australia's inaction are, are significant, um, but I think also the actual impacts of Australia's opposition to genuine action on climate change is, is or adequate genuine action on climate change is really quite significant. What about the smoke issue? Well, the ambulance services all reported that had markedly increased, I think it was 60 or 70% increases in call-outs for people with heart disease and lung disease, asthma. We know that um, the smoke... For, particularly for the very young, the very old, and for pregnant people is, is pretty harmful. But we also know that when the particulate matter, I mean Canberra and Sydney, but lately also Melbourne and down the coast of Victoria, we've had a lot of smoke, and that particulate matter, particularly the particles less than 2.5, get into the bloodstream and are harmful. And so really, in some ways, it's been a wake-up call for the people in the cities because not only have these terrible bushfires sort of decimated more than 10 million hectares, of bush and land, farmland, but also the smoke is, is so widespread it's getting into the cities and so that's having health impacts and people, if, if well, I shouldn't say if the smoke come back, when the smoke comes back because these fires will happen again and we're not at the peak of our bushfire season yet, it's still January. When the smoke comes back either this year or other years, people should go and get those P2 masks or the N95 masks if they have to go outdoors. They should consider staying indoors as much as they can and avoiding vigorous exercise because this smoke is harmful and prolonged exposure is not good. So it's going to have impacts the people that are directly infected, but it's also going to have impacts on people in the cities. And I think that's been quite a wake-up call for a lot of people, that climate change is not actually something we're talking about for the future. Climate change is here and now and it's impacting on everybody. I know there, do you believe, long-term effects of that smoke inhalation on people's health? I don't think it's as toxic as cigarette smoke. Cigarette smoke has a lot more cancer-causing particles, but they do think it will damage people's lungs. And, but it's, it's worst of all for the people, as I said, the very young, the very old, and the pregnant, in that it worsens their ability. For instance, in a baby, I would imagine that it will just reduce the ability of their lungs to fight off infections and things. But for the asthmatics, the diabetics, and the people with chronic heart disease, we know that it's worsening of all those conditions. Um, and anyone with chronic lung disease has got major problems when there's reduced air quality. I know that certain numbers of firefighters do have those masks, but there seems to be a lot you see don't have them. Yeah, the firefighters are amazing people, and really we're very fortunate to have so many volunteers. Yes, that got, and there was a whole um, section early on in the bushfires about New South Wales firefighters being very under-resourced and not having adequate masks. But even with a mask... Um, I think people who are really close to the fire front uh, deal with terrible air quality. 
And I don't know if you saw those photos that came from Malakuta, where at 9 o'clock in the morning and 11 o'clock in the morning, it was pitch black because the smoke was so thick. It looked like night time. And that, that I, can't, I can't even imagine that, actually. I, I mean, I saw the pictures, but I, I can't imagine what that's like and what it would be like to breathe that air. And as you said, if the government doesn't try and do something, only January, this can go until the end of March. Yes, and incredibly disappointing that in Madrid that they were one of the countries that acted to spoil stronger action. I mean, they're not only not, only not doing enough, but they're, they're harming international efforts. It's very uh, shameful for us as a country. And, and the other side of it is animal losses. The fact that 10 million hectares, they say, there's over a billion animals lost, and some of those animals are endangered. I mean, it's out of my expertise, but I find it incredibly sad that you know, endangered species are being killed by climate change even faster with fire. And the argument that Morrison keeps on making and all the other government keep, members keep on making is that oh, we're only a very small percentage of the of the problem is Australia. But I heard the other argument against that was that our, our population is so small compared to some of the bigger countries who they accuse of, of having the problem. Our problem is a lot worse because we're such a small population. We do contribute a lot more. I've heard that we're the second per capita per person. We're the second dirtiest emitter only after the people in Saudi Arabia. And given our climate is much more moderate than that, it's really depressing. But I've also read that if you add in our coal exports and our gas exports, both of which produce really major emissions, I think it's up in the, around, around the 4% mark instead of the 1.8% mark that they quote. So, But it's, furthermore, I think the other contribution we make is being an absolutely terrible example to the world. And as I said, in, in Madrid, we actively undermined stronger resolutions. So I think Australia's role is much greater than people like to say, but also it's in the wrong direction. Um, and we should be ashamed of that. And we need to... I, I would urge any of your listeners, and I'm about to do the same myself, is to, is to go and see your Member of Parliament, particularly if they're Liberal, and say, this, you know, you've got to lift your game. This is absolutely not good enough. And as a population, we think this is unacceptable. And that's Dr Margie who's the Vice President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. And I'll be speaking with Margie again next week about another couple of issues regarding war and peace. But there is a rally this Sunday. Is it Sunday? It's the 25th. It's Saturday. This, sun, this Saturday, and it's called No War on Iran Rallies, and it's around Australia on that date. I'll just read the... Blurb from IPAN. Australia joined with the US and the UK in a coalition to wage war on Iraq 17 years ago. Today we're on the cusp of repeating this huge historical mistake by Scott Morrison's unquestioning support of US military objectives. The assassination of Soleimani has led to a crisis in the region with the threat of war with Iran, a country of 80 million people. The Independent and Peaceful Australian Network, representing unions and community organisations across Australia, has called for a National Day of Protest on Saturday the 25th and asks you to join them to declare that we do not want to repeat the mistakes of Iraq. No war on Iran, bring our troops home. This is a, a global day of protest against the war on Iran. 
So if you're in Melbourne, it's 1pm on the steps of the State Library. And I'll give the other capital cities just in case people might be listening elsewhere. Adelaide, it's 1pm on Parliament steps. Perth, 11am outside the US Consulate. Sydney, 12pm outside the Sydney Town Hall. And Brisbane, 11am King George Square. So that's this Saturday coming. And I'll repeat for Melbourne, it's 1pm on the steps of the State Library. It's coming up to Dunbar Law very soon.